Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 18, and let me fill you in for just a minute. Some of you, when Jackson said, there's a QR code, some of you went, a what? Anybody out there? You went, mm, I don't know what a QR code is. Well, the QR code is this little here thingy, uh, the doohickey down here in the corner. And if you have a phone that considers itself to be a smartphone, what you can do is take a, actually show a picture of that, like you take a picture of it and it'll bring up a link for you. Now, if you don't have a thing called a smartphone, uh, you can get on a computer right down there and type in that uh, website, and that will help you sign up for um, the, the pictures coming up. So fill you in. Uh, there's your two cents right there. Uh, okay, so let me, let me give you some background. We are preaching through the book of Exodus, and so far we've attempted through the book of Exodus to ask a few questions, okay? In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we ask the question, who am I? And we look at Moses' life to say, how has God created Moses? And to then introspectively look at our lives and say, okay, how has God created me? What has he created me for? What has he created me to do? How am I a part of God's kingdom, a part of God's people? And how does he want to use me in what he wants to do around the world? And that is a big, big, important question. And we need to understand that we, we don't get to define how God created us or how we want him to use us. He defines us because He is God, and He chooses by His good purposes how He wants to use us in all of our life through creation, our creation, our birth, even our upbringing. God weaves in His training into all of those things and equipping into all of those things so that we might be useful in His kingdom. Are you with me? We looked at Moses' life and we saw a picture of that. Then we looked at the next chapters from chapter 3 uh, all the way through chapter 14 of who is God? I feel like that's a pretty important question to answer for ourselves. Who is God? And so we looked at how has God revealed himself and we looked at the plagues and how in each plague what God is really combating is the, all of the little g gods of Egypt are being judged in every one of the plagues and God is proving himself as the one true God his name is Yahweh, and He alone rules and reigns and sits in heaven. Are you with me, church family? Amen. All right, I'm glad you're awake this morning. Then we're now taking a more corporate look of who has God created His people to be. Now He has rescued His people. He has redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt, and now He has made them to be a people for His name. He has accomplished the promise that He made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that he would make for Abraham a people for God's own possession. They would be his special covenant 
people, and He has redeemed them. He has made them millions strong. Commentators will say that it's on the low side, 1.8 million people, and on the high side, upwards of 3 million people now making up the Israelites. And who has God called them to be? And so in chapter 15, we are a worshipful people. We are a dependent people in chapter 15. In chapter 16, we looked at the the manna that fell from heaven, the quail that came. And and we talked about how that is a foreshadowing of the incarnation of Jesus. That as the bread of life descended from heaven and fell on the ground to feed Israel every day, so Jesus descended from heaven as the bread of life. And he stands up and he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. It was not Moses who gave you manna from heaven, but my father did. And if you'll listen to me, he says, I am the bread of life who comes from heaven to give life. And if you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. And then in chapter 17, we looked at two illustrations. We looked at um, uh, two things. We, we saw the, the water that had run dry and how Moses struck the rock. And that was a foreshadowing of Jesus being struck. It was his crucifixion where that with the staff of God's judgment, Jesus would have been struck. And from when Jesus is struck, living water would have poured out. Okay, and so we see the, the incarnation of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. And then we see the living water represents the infilling of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus says, I'll put in you rivers of living water. And then it says, and he said this about the Spirit, which had not yet been given. And so we see the crucifixion or the incarnation, the crucifixion and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And then immediately after that happens, in the end of chapter 17, verses 8 to 16, we see this picture of a battle. The battle begins, and there's the Amalekites that come and wage war on Israel. And the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and Esau was a representation or a symbol of the flesh. And now we we talked about how last week, inside every believer... Hear me well, inside of every believer, there are two natures warring at one another. There is the old, fleshly, sinful nature, the nature that is in me of Egypt, and there is the new nature that God has given me by trusting Christ's finished work on the cross where He lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and was raised from the dead on my account. And so we see, we see that this war wages. And Moses and Aaron and Hur go up to the top of the mountain and they stand on top of the mountain. Moses has the staff of God in his hands, the staff of his judgment, the staff of his power, the staff of his victory, and is holding it up as a banner. The Lord is my banner. And he holds this up and when he holds it up, Israel prevails. But his hands grow weary and his hands start to fall. And when his hands start to fall, Amalek prevails, and Israel starts getting defeated. And, and I, we talked about how, how much pressure that would have been on Moses last week. When his hands are up, Israel's winning, and when his hands fall down, his friends begin to die in the valley. And we talked about how this battle is an ongoing battle, how it says at the end in verse 16 of chapter 17 that this battle against Israel and the Amalekites would go on from generation to generation And one day God would wipe them out. And that's a representation of our flesh. So that's where we are. And we come to chapter 18. We come to chapter 18 and we're looking at the question, 
who has God called us to be? Who are we? And the answer is an organized people. An organized people. But before I get to the organization part, we have to take a walk through some of Moses' awkward family relationships. Okay? So, let's look down at verse 1 and let's read together. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for him. And then in verse 2, now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Well, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Along with her two sons, not his two sons, her two sons, right? Uh, This sounds like a, a TV drama, right? It goes on, verse 4, or verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So here's what I want you to see. After deliverance, Moses' family is restored to him. First, you have Zipporah, his wife. Now, I'm not exactly sure because we're not told the reason why Moses sent Zipporah back to Midian to be with Jethro. But what we assume, the last time we see Zipporah is back in, uh, I think it's chapter 3. Oh, don't get me lying. No, chapter 7. When they're coming uh, into Egypt, they're coming into Egypt, and Zipporah, on the way into Egypt, um, realizes that the judgment of God is out after Moses because one of their sons had not yet been circumcised. And so there on the side of the road, she circumcises a son, And she looks at Moses and says, you are a husband of blood. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's the last that we see of Zipporah. And so it seems to say that after that, Moses sent her home. Moses sent her back to Jethro. You go back to Midian because the road ahead of us is more difficult. And we can't be having any of this on the way. So there's Exodus chapter 7. You're a husband of blood to me. All right, then sons. Sons, we see there are two names. The first son is named Gershom, which means a stranger or a sojourner. Because Gershom was born in Midian to Moses and he, as he was a sojourner in a foreign land. The second son, his name is Eliezer, which means God my helper. God who is my helper. And so we see something of Moses' story in the two children's names. He was a stranger and a sojourner, and God became his helper. Now, Jethro, also, they have an awkward relationship. Here's why. Because Jethro is a Midianite priest. Now, both of those things are important for us. Number one, Midianites and Amalekites were related to each other. Now, in chapter 17, who did they just fight a battle against? The Amalekites. And God says at the end of chapter 17 that this war, I will war, God says, with the Amalekites from generation to generation, and Moses' father-in-law is related to them. So that makes that relationship a little interesting, doesn't it? And then he is a priest of Midian. Now, who is he a priest of? He is not a priest of Most High God, but he is, in fact, a pagan priest. Do you think that there were some interesting Thanksgiving conversations around the table? Awkward relationships. And what we see is that these relationships were restored after deliverance. What I want you to understand is that from the beginning of time, God is a God of reconciliation. The first part of reconciliation is us 
as sinners being reconciled to a holy God, and God makes the move. We don't reconcile ourselves to God, but God reconciles us to Himself through Christ. And secondly, then we are reconciled to one another. I can never be reconciled to you if I've first not been reconciled to God. And that's what we see. We see 18.1 that... uh, Jethro heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. He heard about it from Midian. He heard all of the things that God had done. The reports had made it all the way to Midian, and Jethro heard it. Now in verse 6, he brings uh, Moses' family. He brings Moses' family. Moses goes out to meet him. He bows down and he kisses him, which is interesting that Moses, the man of God, would bow to a pagan priest and kiss him. Verse 8, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Listen to what what Moses is doing. Moses begins to tell the good news. You're not going to believe how God delivered us, how he redeemed us. You're not going to believe what God did for my life, for my family, for his people. You're not going to believe how he intervened and, and did all these wonderful works. He begins to share the good news with Jethro. Then he talks about all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Three things that Moses shares. He, he, he shared all the things that all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, all the hardships, and then all the ways that God had delivered them along the way. He shares these things. Verse 9, and Jethro rejoiced. Jethro rejoices with Moses for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Okay, now in my Bible, uh, the Lord is all caps which means it's, it's identifying the, the true name or the one given name of God that he gives. It says, this will be my covenant name, and that name is, help me out, Yahweh. He says, blessed be Yahweh. Now, isn't that interesting that a pagan priest rejoices with Moses how, how God, Yahweh, had just delivered them from Egypt, all the things that he had done for them, and now he blesses Yahweh. He rejoices in what he's done, and he blesses them. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. What do we see in Jethro's heart happening here? What's going on inside Jethro? Conversion. Conversion. Most commentators believe that this is the moment that Jethro goes from a pagan priest to a follower of Yahweh. He says, now I know. This is a change in thought. This is faith. Verse 12, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now, He's not offering burnt offerings and sacrifices to these little g-gods any longer, but because he knows that Yahweh is the one true God and greater than all the gods, and so he brings a burnt offering and sacrifices to Yahweh. And who is with him? Who is with him? Verse 12 continues, And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. Now, why is it important 
that all the elders, but specifically Aaron, come to this dinner that's put on for Jethro because of these sacrifices and offerings. Why is that important that Aaron would be there? Because Aaron is the priest of the Most High God for Israel. Many commentators believe that Aaron's uh, participation in this dinner is Aaron's acknowledgement that Jethro's sacrifices and offerings and praise and worship are now acceptable. And so we see this. We see that, that this might be Jethro's conversion story. And I just need you to know that this has to happen to every single person on planet earth if you want to be a part of God's family. You don't add Jesus to the life that you already have to enter the kingdom, but rather you acknowledge that I was once a pagan priest and now I know that Yahweh is the one true God and the God above all gods. And so you might be sitting out there today and, and you have never made the step of denying your old life and accepting Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You've never denied yourself to take up the cross. It doesn't just say take up the cross. It says first deny yourself. And that's what Paul does in Philippians chapter 3 when he says everything that was gained to me I count it as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found in him not having a righteousness of my own righteousness of my own which comes from the law but a righteousness that comes apart from the law and is found in Christ Everything is lost. He says, I count it as garbage, as dung, as the refuse of the world compared to knowing Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't made that step, make that step. Okay, now here we go. We're coming into two hazards that the people of God have encountered along the way. Okay, so this idea of an organized people... Two hazards that they come along the way. The first one is confrontation. Okay, confrontation. So if you go back to chapter 17 in your minds or in your Bibles, verses 1 to 7, we're an internal confrontation. A confrontation from the inside, right? There was a problem. There was no water. There was no water. And so uh, because there was no water, instead of leaning on Jesus or God in that moment, trusting the same one who had done all these miracles for them, they begin to do what? They grumble, they complain. There is an internal, inside conflict between one another, a conflict on the inside. Now, A.W. Pink says it about this, or he says it like this. He says, they would rather lean on, the, on a cobweb of human resources than upon the arm of an omnipotent, all-wise, and infinitely gracious God. Why didn't the people in that moment begin to call out to the Lord. They'd seen God do miracles in that moment, but instead they bring Moses into the center of this and say, it's your fault. Have you brought us out here to starve us and to kill us with thirst? Of course the answer is no. 
But instead of calling out to Yahweh, the one who hears, the one who sees, they, there is a confrontation from the inside. Verse 8 through 16, there's a confrontation from the outside. The Amalekites. The second, the second obstacle or hazard we see that, that comes along the way is not the obstacle of confrontation, but the obstacle of disorganization. Follow me. Grab your Bible. Look down at verse 13. This is the main thrust of this passage. Okay, If you don't have a Bible and you want one, there's a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you. Open it up, Exodus 18, it's there. If you don't own a Bible, take it home with you. But I want you to walk through this with me. The main thrust is that Moses receives wisdom from Jethro that the mission will never be accomplished if the organization isn't healthy. So follow me. Verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Could you just imagine that? Two, three million people. Every problem that they have, where do they take their problems? Moses. Could you imagine? Who wants Moses' job in that moment? Uh-uh. Nobody does. Every one of them. Verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? So Jethro questions him. Jethro questions Moses. What is this that you're doing for the people? And why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. What is this that you're doing? Two questions. He questions him here. In other words, Moses, what is your God-given job in Israel? That's a good question to ask each one of ourselves. What has God called me to do? Sometimes we do what is urgent more than we do what is necessary. This, is, this can be a passage about focusing our affections and our attentions and our efforts and our energies not on what is most urgent, but on what is most important. Moses, what's your job? He answers, verse 15, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. So number one, when, the, when anybody has a dispute of any kind, they've got problems, they come to me and, and, and I inquire of God for them. That's a pretty big job. That's a lot of people to inquire for. And then he says, verse 16, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And second thing, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So I inquire of God in disputes. And secondly, I teach God's people about who he is and what he requires of us. So I teach. I inquire of God for the people and I teach God's people about God and his law. All right, let's look at verse 17. Now, now we might say, wow, that's a heck of a job description. But that is a huge job description when there are millions of people in your congregation. So, Jethro corrects Moses. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. How, 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 how kind of astounding do you think that would be for you if you're Moses? Who are you to tell me? Right? 
what you're doing is not good. But what we see is a great bit of humility from Moses. What you're doing is not good. Verse 18, you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, just imagine for a second. Imagine that you're Moses. How worn out would you be at the end of a workday? You've just inquired of God and taught all the people about God and His ways for you. And you've done it from morning till evening every day. Man, you'd be worn out. Now, imagine you're one of God's people. And you're inquiring of Moses. And you come to the DMV and you get your number. And you're number 379 for the day. Right? The DMV, the happiest place on the planet. You, you know how, Now imagine that's what you come to. Everybody's going to be worn out. Moses is going to be worn out. The people are going to be worn out. Moses is frustrated. The people are frustrated. I, and I just want you to know, that's what ministry looks like. Ministry is a heavy burden. You, you think holding the staff up on the mountain for a day was hard. Try doing this every day of your life. You think that was burdensome? Look at this burden that Moses is supposed to carry, or he thinks he's supposed to carry, every day all by himself. Now Jethro says, it's too heavy for you to do it. And you're not able to do it alone. Now one of the things that we see all throughout the Old Testament and the New is that God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Now every woman says, of course, needed somebody to straighten that boy out. And every man in here goes, "Uh uh-huh, we get it. I don't know what I'd do without my bride. But as we move forward through the Old Testament and the New, God's people were never intended to be governed alone. God's church is not meant to be pastored or shepherded alone. Nobody is supposed to serve on an island, because why? Because you will burn yourself out. Now, you might have served in a church somewhere. You might have been the only children's teacher, and you might have worn yourself slap out. Anybody ever been there in church? Then just imagine what Moses is going through. Pastoral ministry is a heavy burden. I read read these articles all the time because I'm sent these articles all the time, but Uh, In one article, it says 75% of pastors report report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. This is a recent article. 40% of report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 80% will not be in ministry 10 years from now. 80% of pastors will not be in ministry in 10 years. On average, seminary-trained pastors last five years in church ministry. 100% of evangelical pastors had a colleague who had left the ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. 91% of pastors have experienced some form of burnout. (laughs) I thought this was funny. And 18% say they're fried to a crisp. 70% of pastors say they have lower self-esteem than when they entered the ministry. 70% constantly fight depression. This is a burden. It's a heavy burden that God has called Moses to bear. It's a heavy burden that God has called pastors to bear. Now listen to this. This is interesting. 
in August of this past year, of 2022, in the New York Times opinion section, there was an article written by a pastor entitled, Why Pastors Are Burning Out. New York Times. I mean, come on, this, this, this is not some Bible Belt paper. New York Times, and it, it quotes, the percentage of pastors who have considered quitting full-time ministry within the past year sits at 42%. Ministry burnout is real. It's difficult. Ministry is difficult. And it is a heavy burden. Pastoral ministry is a heavy burden, too heavy to bear alone. And so Jethro gives advice. Jethro gives great advice, not just for Israel, but for us. We need to understand that, that, that Israel is a picture, a foreshadowing of the church. The Israel that we see in the Old Testament has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and with the mighty hand of God. And we, the church, have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and by the mighty power of God in the resurrection. In Exodus chapter 19, which we'll get to next week, we are called a kingdom of priests. First Peter in Revelation also called the church a kingdom of priests. The, the connection here is not to look at Jethro and Moses and say, okay, that was important for them, but how is it, the question is, how is it important for us today? Jethro advises, verse 19, if you do, excuse me, 19, now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall, re you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. You will do that, Moses. Moreover, verse 21, moreover, Look for able men from among the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of the thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So let's think about what Jethro advises Moses of. Number one, look for able men. Find qualified men to work and serve. Administration in God's people by the qualified. D.L. Moody says it this way. He said, I'd rather find a hundred men to do the work than do the work of a hundred men. We're not made to do it alone. I mean, just go back to chapter 17 uh, in 8 through 16 where Aaron and her come alongside Moses and when Moses' hands get tired, who steps to his sides? Aaron and her. He's not made to do it alone. He's not made to do it alone. This is another picture. Pastors need godly men to come alongside them. And when, when we can't find godly men, that leads us to the Great Commission, which says, go and make disciples. Or like Paul says it in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who are able to teach others. But we see these men are to be put in places that God has called them to serve. Moses, he's saying, Moses, if you'll let them do what God's called them to do, you can do what only God's called you to do. 
Does this sound familiar at all? He says, okay, find able men. Men who fear God. Men who fear God. Why is that important? Why is the fear of God important? Um, I, I think it's uh, the proverb. Solomon says, the fear of the Lord, finish it with me, is the beginning of wisdom. Why is that true? Because when I fear the Lord first, all the other fears that I have in my lives and anxiety that I have in my life fall into proper place. When I fear God, and I don't mean terror, but I mean respect and honor, knowing that it's only by His grace that I'm not on His bad side. It's only by His grace and His mercy that I'm not under His judgment. Fear the Lord first. Fear the Lord. I, now, I just need to confess, I, I came to church this morning and I went into Christopher's office and I grabbed Jackson and I, I said, uh, I know what I'm supposed to preach this morning and I'm afraid. Fear of man is a real thing. We want to impress people. We want to make people happy with us. We want everybody to like us. But if you read the stories about Moses, he feared the Lord first. That's why he says, you find men who, who fear God over fear of men. You find them. Well, what about, what about accountability for these leaders? What about accountability for pastors in the church? Hebrews 13 is, is the verse that sticks out to me. Oftentimes people say, Ryan, who keeps you accountable? Who do you answer to? Uh, he, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I need you to understand that, that, that ultimately I'm not accountable to you. Ultimately, one day I will stand before God and give an account. And that is a terrifying thought. Is a, and, and what I will give account for is how I've kept watch over your souls. That's terrifying. I would love for our church to grow, but my goal is not to have a big church. Because I can't imagine keeping watch over more people than we already have here. And, and some of you are thinking on the inside, you're failing already. And I go, I know. I know. He says, find men who are able, who fear God, who are trustworthy. Men who have proven themselves and hate a bribe. They, they serve God and not money. And then it says, and place them, such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Doesn't this sound familiar? Doesn't this sound just like Acts chapter 6? Acts chapter 6, what we see is when the church began to grow, a complaint arose. A complaint arose. Why? Because the church began to grow and, and the twelve couldn't keep watch over all of the matters within the church because the church grew. And so what they did is they called the church and said, choose for yourselves seven men full of wisdom, with a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and set 
and bring them to us that we might appoint them to this task. And so that's what they do. So here's what I want you to see. There is a way that God had ordained Israel to function. Moses' heart was in the right place. He wanted to care for them. He wanted to love them. He wanted to shepherd them. But the process that Moses was using was wrong. It was unhealthy. It wasn't, you couldn't keep it up. You couldn't sustain it. Are you with me? Pastor John Bloom says, In other words, Moses' mission was right, but his method was wrong. Bad systems can undermine the best intentions. Bad systems can undermine the best intentions. There is a way that God made Israel to function, and there's a way that God made Seneca Baptist Church and His church to function. Our heart can be in the right place, but if our structure and our organization is unhealthy, bad systems will undermine the best of intentions. In Seneca Baptist, I believe this with all of my heart. I speak with David Shirley about this a lot. David Shirley said, Ryan, you're on the verge of walking as a healthy church for the first time in a long time. We have an opportunity to set the organization at Seneca Baptist in biblical order. And we have for a long time been functioning in a less than biblical manner. For a long time at Seneca Baptist, in many Baptist churches, there was a board of deacons. Do you remember those? The board of deacons came into existence in the Industrial Revolution when boards of companies came into existence. They thought this is pragmatic and helpful in the secular world, and so we'll just adopt the secular world into the church and ask God to bless it. And that's not what we see in the Scriptures, is it? By God's grace, before I got here, Seneca Baptist Church has gotten that in order. Our deacons are servants in the church, but we're not all the way there. We're not all the way to a healthy organization. When you read the New Testament, God's church is led by God-called pastors. They're to lead, shepherd, teach, administrate, protect the flock. Deacons are to serve the physical needs and protect the unity of the church to undergird the ministry of the word at the church. Finally, all of God's people, and if you're God's people, you're in this. God has so gifted you with His Holy Spirit to give you talents and abilities that He desires to redeem and use for His kingdom's sake and His glory right here at Seneca Baptist. We at Seneca Baptist on Wednesday nights have spent the last year or so preaching through the book of 1 Timothy, talking about what is a church that glorifies God. And that's what I want to be. And it involves God's called pastors serving in a way that God has called them to serve. It involves God's called deacons to serve in a way that God has ordain them to serve, and it involves every single one of us using our spiritual gifts in a way that He has called us to serve. And we can't do it without a, a 
One pastor is not made to do this alone. We can't do it without the pastors that God has given to His church here at Seneca Baptist. We can't do it without our deacons, and we can't do it without each one of you. That's why we spent so much time in 1 Timothy. That's why we spent so much time on spiritual gifts. We could have knocked out spiritual gifts in two weeks with a survey, right? Fill this out, we'll report next week. But we didn't. Pastor Ken led an incredible 13 weeks on spiritual gifts. How has God created you? How has He wired you? How has He intrinsically built you to serve His kingdom? You have the ability to do things that I don't have the ability to do. People, God's people are to serve God's church using their spiritual gifts under the leadership of the pastors of the church. We're not to be a committee-led church or a council-led church, nor is a singular pastor meant to lead alone. For the structure of SBC to be healthy, pastors and members must do what God has called them to do. And I I need you to know, you might be looking up there and go, hey, Ryan, pot, kettle, pot, kettle. And I go, I'm right there with you, brother. I get it. I fail my Lord daily. Every day I go home and I say, I could have studied more. I could have visited more. I could have cared more. I could have loved more. I could have called somebody else. I get it. If pastors like Moses try to do all the work, then the mission will fail. And if we do not train and equip and delegate, then we'll fall short of what God wants us to be. If members serve outside of their gifting and their calling, then again, our mission will fail. Verse 23, and I'm going to end. says, if you do this, And then there's this parenthetical phrase, God will direct you. In other words, what Jethro is saying is you go to the Lord and you see if what I'm saying stands right in his eyes. You go, you get alone with the Lord and you find out if what I'm saying is scriptural, is what God would say. If you do this, God God will direct you. But if you do this, what does he say? Two outcomes. You will be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in peace. When, when, when the people of Israel weren't organized rightly. The people never experienced the peace of God. But when they began to be organized differently, God promises that they would experience peace. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. 
And I'll just be honest, I don't know what to do with 27 just yet. So we're going to hang on to it until next week. As we move forward, we talk about being a church that glorifies God. It's not just about doing the right things, but it's being organized the right way. Your pastor has been praying and laboring and praying and seeking wisdom about what that would look like. And I, I want us to be in some conversations in the days ahead that our organization might become a healthier organization. That we might look to the scripture and say, has God actually clearly said what we ought to do, but we're just not doing it? Because I think he has. So as we close today, let me make this very practical for persons, each individual. Remember, you only have so much time in this world. Some of you know that very clearly. You feel it. Your knees feel it. Your hips feel it, right? I only have so much time left. And I just want to encourage you, don't do what's urgent. Do what is most important. Don't satisfy for the good when God's called you to the best. And for us as a church, let us seek to be the kind of church that God has called us to be. Not for our sake, but for his glory among the nations. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, and I, I just preached a long time, a big section, said a lot of things. And Father, my prayer is that whatever came from you, which I've been laboring over this sermon. Whatever came from you would stick in our hearts. And that maybe more like stick in our craws and we would digest. We would pray about. And Father, whatever came from me. Father, number one, forgive me. And number two, cause it to be forgotten. But Father, I, I pray that we as people, individuals, and, and we as a church would take a hard look at why we do what we do, how we do what we do, and is it the best way to do it? Is it the scriptural way to do it? We love you, Lord. And if there's anybody here today that needs to cross from death to life, Father, please let it be so. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everybody said, let's stand together, let's sing. If you'd like to come and kneel at the altar.